Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies today with our guest coming to us from Providence, Rhode Island. He is Professor Fabrizio Fengi, an assistant professor of Slavic studies at Brown University, specializing in contemporary Russian culture and politics. Um, Welcome, Fabrizio. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Stephen, for having me, and uh, hi, everyone, for to the audience. So for our audience, uh, this book is, is really wonderful. It's a book called it's, It Will Be Fun and Terrifying, Nationalism and Protest in Post-Soviet Russia, published by University of Wisconsin Press 2020. A little bit about Dr. Fengi. He is an assistant professor of Slavic studies at Brown. And his interests include the relationship between art and literature and the shaping of post-Soviet public culture. Fengi received his PhD in Slavic languages and lit from Yale in 2016, and he grew up in Milan, Italy, where he received his degrees in foreign languages and literatures from Milan State University. He spent several years of study and doing research in Moscow, where he was affiliated with the Russian State University for the Humanities, and Moscow State University. Uh, I'm particularly interested in this book uh, because he, he, in the book, he studies the ways in which aesthetics and culture of the National Bolshevik Party of Edward Limonov, a radical countercultural movement, has influenced the development of Russian protest culture and the formation of state ideology during the Putin Era. I have a lot of questions um, for Dr. Fengi, who teaches courses on 20th and 21st century Russian culture, literature, and politics, Russian language, gender and sexuality, nationalism, and a whole lot more. So uh, let's get right start, started right away with the book, um, Fabrizio. I, I want to begin with the question of, that I always ask my um, interviewees, and that's how you came to the topic. So do you have an origin story intellectually and personally for, for what led you into uh, the world of Moscow and Russian postmodernist literature? Uh, yes, of course. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for the question. So the the interest in uh, in Russian literature and Russian contemporary and post-Soviet literature more generally goes back to my college and master's years at in Milan. But going uh, kind of closer to the uh, this to the the the, the project uh, this uh, the project for the book. Uh, my interest in sort of the beginning or the spark that kind of inspired the project was. Uh, in 2011 and uh, 2011 and 12, uh, on that sort of academic year, I was living in uh, Moscow, uh, working and studying, and uh, this was before I had chosen the the actual. So I was already a graduate student 
uh, at Yale, but at that point uh, living in Moscow. And I found myself in a quite vibrant, exciting, uh, a, a little bit unexpected and unpredictable situation, which was this wave of protest uh, uh, for fair elections. That was kind of the main big, biggest sort of mass uh, protest movements before this very recent, uh, these very recent events that we had with uh, Navalny's arrest. And it was quite kind of a little bit of a, an epiphany for me because I had already lived, uh, spent quite a bit of time in Russia and had interacted with uh, uh, Russians uh, often. And the general feeling was that in in uh, previous years had been one of general sort of uh, disengagement and political passivity and even fear to talk about uh, politics or a certain sort of uh, uh, a, a, a sort of way of a sort of a kind of uneasiness in talking about politics. And all of a sudden, this kind of 2011-12 moment was a moment in which uh, you know, 60 to 100,000 people would show up at uh, uh, mass protests. There were these uh, famous uh, uh, kind of popular strolls led by writers, this Occupy by kind of inspired by the Occupy Wall Street, but with a specific uh, Russian flavor. And I was in the middle of all of this and uh, and kind of I got I started being more and more interested in not just literature, or the arts, but their connection with politics, and uh, and uh, at that point, so uh, it kind of the cho the choice of uh, uh, Limonov and the National Bolshevik Party, which was quite gradual, starting from there, was kind of not the most natural choice because at that point, uh, Limonov was not very much on board with. Uh, with the wave of protest, Limonov, uh, Edward Limonov was a kind of scandalous uh, writer, the leader of the National Bolshevik Party, and he was quite a celebrity uh, still in 2011 and 12. Right. He actually died last year, and but he was also kind of uh, not very much on board with these protests, and he kind of criticized them for being too bourgeois, too westerners, uh, and uh, he kind of reclaimed. Uh, a sort of primacy on Russian protest culture, saying, well, the actual pioneers of post-Soviet protest culture, uh, it was us in the sense of the national Bolsheviks. I had heard of the Natsboli. I knew of Limonov as a kind of uh, underground uh, emigre writer. I knew about the Natsboli, but they remain kind of a little bit of a mystery to me and so i kind of in that sense this the choice of the of limonov and the not was a little bit of a knight's gambit so not mm, the most that's interesting straightforward <laughs> yeah. way to yeah, yeah. go at it given that the last that the last uh, uh, sort of the latest movement was kind of not uh, necessarily yeah. primarily led by him so that's the in short that's that's that's, that's really interesting it's interesting fabrizio that you begin the story in that moment in 2011 I, I wonder if i could ask you a little bit about the 1990s and 2000s going forward and as you argue in the book how really interestingly how countercultural movements get incorporated into and perhaps even co-opted into the political mainstream 
Now, I, I mean, our listeners, I'm sure, will, will want to know about Dugan. It's sort of like the magic name and the magic word. But how, I mean, how do you set up in the book the story of the Nutsboli and, and Limonov and Limonka? Are, are there antecedents to this kind of performative culture? Or, or how do you understand the emergence after 2011 of, of, of his work? Of course, yes. Actually, thank you for your question, and I think I'm really happy that uh, uh, you are looking at this as a historian in a sense, because I think that it's very important to have a quite rigorous periodization in the sense of the post-Soviet uh, uh, society and post-Soviet political culture, because as you mentioned, the 1990s were a very different situation in terms of the sort of meaning. Uh, yeah. Uh, of, of various political movements and ideologies. And uh, uh, so the, the NBP in particular emerges in this moment that is very different from the one of the first decade of the 2000s, that is this, uh, the kind of crucial key moment uh, that precedes the foundation of the NBP is the parliamentary crisis of 1993, when, when this uh, coalition of uh, leftist and nationalist forces kind of uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, starts a resistance against the, the liberal or especially sort of the uh, kind of shock uh, therapy and uh, market free market reforms of Yeltsin, and that resulted in that sort of violent, quite dramatic standoff which uh, ended with the bombing of the uh, parliament and sort of also the killing of, uh, uh, of the, uh, several hundred people, right? So it was this moment and politically right. this moment was one of kind of very different from uh, the Putin era in the sense that Yeltsin uh, sort of, this was a moment in which at least in word, in words, liberal democracy and liberalism uh, and sort of a sense of normalization and transition to democracy were kind of the dominant slogans and dominant world in words in uh, um, Russian uh, uh, sort of mainstream media and society. And so the fact mm. is that uh, Limonov at that point was kind of coming back from uh, his uh, sort of emigre period. And the NBP was founded as this kind of radical rejection of everything that was mainstream and sort of accepted as a sort of end of history and end of ideology. And it was started by Limonov and by Alexander Dugin, who at that point was kind of much more of a fringe uh, uh, mm -hmm. kind of uh, figure. Uh, some of the my informants said that they kind of saw him as a sort of artist philosopher, so to speak. And mm -hmm. they, or the kind of goal of the NBP was to combine the radical right and nationalism with the radical left and communism. So kind of reclaim with this, this label, right, brand of uh, red-brown ideology, which at the time was very much kind of a Krasna Karichneva Chuma was kind of a very mm -hmm. uh, red-brown flag was, yeah. was kind of much of a kind of a derogatory term. So can they kind of reclaimed the they were basically saying, we are the flag, we are the kind of chuma, this uh, horrible uh, kind of uh, unsavory characters. And the NVP started uh, sort of, it was thought of as a political party, as a political movement, but 
it actually had many faces. It evolved in many very different ways. And it was, at the same time, more than a political party, kind of a countercultural movement, punk movement, uh, well, an art uh, movement in the sense of this uh, bunker, bunker that was their central headquarters. So it mm-hmm. had very different identities throughout the years, but this was the sort of beginning in terms of uh, the ideology and sort of the historical situation that sparked the, the movement yeah. itself. I, I'm particularly interested in how you set up your chapters around these um, counterculturalist critics and, and understand this as a, a criticism of postmodernity as, as well as what might be called neoliberalism. It, it's it's curious to me how you've arranged your chapters, and I wonder if you could introduce our readers to that, because, I mean, there are so many intellectual influences for Limonka. They have, you know, everyone from Guy Debord to, like, Marcuse and, and you know, William Burroughs, um, and, and they stylize themselves in a particular way. So re- really my question, borrowing from the title of one of your chapters, um, called Making Post-Soviet Counter-Republics is how you decided to arrange all of your materials and with sources and, and your informants, as you as you mentioned. Could you give us an idea of, of how you decided to organize the book? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes. And the, so, well, to start first, there's sort of the, the, the Making Post-Soviet Counter-Republics chapter is the second chapter. It's preceded by a sort of prehistory of the movement in uh, specifically kind of a, a study of uh, uh, Edward Limonov and his literary and uh, public trajectory before the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, so, and uh, uh, I won't go too much into detail, but uh, Limonov was a very different uh, character uh, before becoming the uh, kind of leader of the National Bolshevik Party. He became famous for this uh, uh, very, uh, he was an underground poet. He became famous for this uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, scandalous and very kind of uh, raw uh, narrative, semi-fictional biography that was uh, It's Me, Eddie. And he was fascinated with with actually leftist culture, uh, countercultures of various kind, punk cultures, and so in a sense, he was the guy that brought back the aesthetics of uh, uh, Western countercultures in general and New York countercultures in particular. So the CBGB was uh, the, mm-hmm, the club right. where he hung out famously, was yeah. friends with various members of the Ramones. So that was kind of the <laughs> punk side of the yeah, yeah. of the yeah, and in the, in the, whereas, so going back to the 1990s, since it's kind of quite a big, big period uh, to cover, uh, so, um, so the organization of the chapters start with this moment uh, in the sense of this way, this kind of uh, uh, D is sort of some of the influences that uh, Limonov had in terms of uh, counterculture. Again, uh, William, uh, William Burroughs. Uh, uh, Pierpaolo Pasolini, uh, among others, and uh, and say uh, uh, Dugin, who was a kind of right-wing conservative thinker, who also kind of liked to appropriate critical theorists such as the 
situation is uh, uh, Guy Debord um, and uh, and others with sort of a criticism of postmodernism, but it's kind of a sort of such a strange uh, hate love relationship. And as you mentioned, the kind of the the newspaper Limon is kind of the center of this aesthetics uh, uh, regarding the uh, the NBP and especially the early period of the NBP. And uh, it is a kind of a, a, a newspaper that kind of started this this movement from aesthetic an aesthetical point of view, and through kind of this the circulation of this newspaper, kind of created to an extent uh, by by uh, kind of uh, uh, sparking or uh, kind of uh, eliciting a response from uh, kind of uh, um, uh, young people throughout Russia in the 1990s, created kind of this community and the culture of this community, and it it did mix very many very many kind of not uh, uh, mutually uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of incompatible things such as the uh, the 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 aesthetics of the uh, Russian avant-garde, uh, socialist realism, totalitarianism, futurism, but both kind of the Italian futurism, which was appropriated by the fascists, and the Russian futurism, which became kind of the aesthetics of the 1920s and early Soviet period, with again. Uh, punk uh, counterculture uh, of the 1970s uh, uh, in Europe um, uh, as a so, sort of as a kind of a reinvent in reinvented forms, and so the kind of the structure of the chapters. So Limonka was kind of an important um, element in this, in this, in terms of structuring the my own narrative in the sense that it was this kind of collective endeavor. And sort of collective uh, uh, medium of uh, uh, kind of of, uh, of expression, and in part the rest of the narrative was also uh, kind of uh, uh, affected or uh, kind of conditioned by my own kind of sort of ethnographic um, fieldwork and research. So the uh, mm-hmm. the discussions and conversations with the uh, informants that I had, uh, political activists, writers, artists that were involved with the movements at one moment of, or the other kind of uh, kind of led a little bit in my narrative also uh, kind of in addition to the sort of chronology of what yeah, happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I wonder, um, you know, without asking you to divulge your sources, I think you do a really good job um, getting into the ethnographic research, could could you explain maybe um, for our listeners what kind what kind of method you had in talking to people and what kind of questions you you had of them? You know, you mentioned this Eurasianist salon in your acknowledgments, and I, I would guess that you didn't just walk up to people and start asking them what do you think of Dugan or you know what do you think of, of Limonov or or, or Sorokin or Pelevin or anything that you actually had to, in some ways, have access to this under underground world. So I'm particularly, you know, curious after having read Alexei Yurchak and, and others and the whole idea of living vnia, living outside, how how you how you got into that world. So what what was it aside from just reading? Um, reading Limonov or, or reading the journals. Mm-hmm. 
you meaning to the world of uh, counterculture and uh, uh, national Bolshevism? Yeah, so. I mean, obviously you've got, you know, anarchists and punks on the left who are sort of anti-establishment. And then you have, as you, as you introduce later in the book, the conservative postmodernists and ultra-nationalists on the right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and sometimes, you know, they're in, engaging in, this, in the same Krujok. I mean, what, mm-hmm. what, what is it in the same circle? So what, what is it that gets you into this world? How did you go about mm-hmm. doing that, doing that research? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your question. This is, uh, uh, this is uh, uh, very interesting and perhaps the, uh, one of the most exciting aspects of uh, uh, that for me of writing the book and researching the book. So one premise for uh, your listeners should be that again, uh, the, the 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 kind of distinction between the NBP, which existed as this countercultural movement in the 1990s, and the NBP of the 2000s versus the uh, Alexander Dugin's U- Eurasia movement. So the NBP d- became two very different things in the 2000s. Uh, the the Natsboli of Edward Limonov. There was kind of a schism between Limonov and Dugin. And after uh, sort of Putin's rise to power, Limonov and the Natsboli, because uh, Limonov wanted the party to remain a quintessentially revolutionary party, mm-hmm. they w- decided to kind of align themselves more or less with the liberal op- or generally the opposition against Putin. And they were a little bit of a street avant-garde of the mm-hmm. uh, opposition against Putin in the 2000s, whereas Dugin kind of um, gathered a smaller group of people coming, or schismatics, we might say, coming from the National Bolshevik Party, and he uh, founded this Eurasia movement, which was quite the opposite. It was a a staunchly imperialist supporter of uh, Putin's regime. So starting from this premise, the ethnographic part and sort of how I went about... uh, uh, meeting and talking and discussing some of these things with my informants, some of whom remain anonymous, sort of in the tradition of uh, 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 anthropology and cultural anthropology. I- in the book, they remain anonymous. Others who are kind of more public figures, so it would be kind of very difficult to uh, to make them, uh, to protect their anonymity, they are actually uh, named. But the vast majority, as you said, they are they're anonymous and kind of the, the different ways, there are different ways I went about uh, meeting them uh, depending on kind of the type of people uh, they were. In this, and they were kind of very different uh, kind of people. So in the case of the, so let's say, starting with the early uh, NBP, so to speak, uh, the way the, the the kind of interaction was a little bit different with the older generation of Natsboli, many of whom had left the party and that pursued different kinds of sort of intellectual, editorial, or academic careers. And with them, it was a kind of the the easiest or the most kind of uh, um, predictable uh, type of interaction in the sense that I would just get in touch with them on Facebook or email, or I would try to find their contacts and uh, and uh, meet with them for a sort of so-called semi-structural, semi-structured uh, interview, right? Start with mm-hmm. a sort of set of questions and then 
uh, go about sort of uh, uh, possible tangents, uh, depending on what their answer would uh, where, where their answers would bring us. And in terms of finding the, the, the informants themselves beyond the people who are kind of more visible and more kind of public figures, uh, so in part I was doing the, what uh, social scientists call the, 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 the so-called um, snowball, sam snowball sampling, right? So mm -hmm. at the end of my first interview, I would ask who, who are two or three people, I think, as you are doing. Yeah, uh, as exactly as I'll do at the end of the podcast. <laughs> we'll do a snowball exactly. together, <laughs> Fabrizio. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. it's, a, it's a similar system. Right. And so who do you think I should talk to? And as some of the, as, at some point, so as some of the, uh, some anthropologists I was kind of collaborating and in a dialogue with kind of taught me, and then I could verify in the field, at some point you realize that you're going in the right direction if uh, after interviewing or talking with several people, the people that are suggested start overlapping. In that case, you realize that yeah, you're yeah. kind of looking at the same network, right? So that's... Right. And, right. and so that was the one kind of interaction. The other one with the present activists with, who were very uh, sort of current activists who at that point were uh, supporting uh, um, Russia's annexation of Crimea. This was 2015 when I was doing my uh, fieldwork. Some of them were actually fighting as volunteers in eastern Ukraine. So this was a kind of a very like less bourgeois type of interaction mm -hmm. in the sense that I called, I asked to talk to someone, and then I kind of started attending some of their uh, meetings and uh, some of their more informal gatherings and marches and protests. So that was more of a participant observation in the sense that, of course, with this type of of uh, activists, I could not just uh, turn on the voice recorder because that would exactly. have killed them. Yes. Exactly. And that, that was kind of my next question, because I really want to ask about the, the gender dynamics, not only of the National Bolshevik Party, the NBP, but this place of eroticism and death and sexuality and experimentalism. I, I mean, you, you describe them as a counterculture in the book and, and their bohemianism especially, but it, it strikes me that the National Bolshevik Party is such a male-dominated organization. Um, could, could you give us a kind of general sense of this? Because there are, there are women involved in it, but their um, gender roles become pretty conservative. Or, or correct, correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong with that. Well, so it is... It is a very, also a very interesting uh, question that of gender in the sense that, um, well, so I should add, uh, in terms of the interaction with, uh, with, um, with my informants, I was going to add in terms of this Eurasianist salon that you mentioned, that was something a little different. Uh, for Eurasianists and Dugins who are very kind of close to the government right now, in, I was kind of trying to find... Uh, possible connections in terms of people who could introduce me in the sense that these the circles were much kind of more uh, uh, kind of uh, kind of closer and uh, more closed sorry and 
uh, more secretive, right? So that that's sorry, sure. that's, that's just a little digression. But going back to the gender question, yes, definitely, sort of, there was a kind of strong macho masculinist element in the National Bolshevik Party because of Limonov's kind of macho nationalist uh, turn uh, and fascination with war in the 1990s. And this is true, I, I mean, this, this kind of the NBP shared with, uh, uh, with nationalist movements in general and also with uh, punk, the punk movement, right, that has, has always been mm-hmm. quite male-dominated in very many different place, at places. At the same time, Limonov, and I sort of I should get to this important aspect, became, before uh, going back to Russia in the 1990s, as an emigre underground writer and poet, became famous for describing, uh, uh, again, for the scandal that uh, he produced um, in the Russian emigre community in the United States by describing in his book, It's Me, Eddie, his uh, homosexual experiences, mostly uh, with African American men, but sort of quite explicit uh, uh, homosexual uh, scenes, graphic dis- descriptions of uh, um, of um, um, homosexual relationships. So, and of course, Limonov at that point, the, the, it's Miedi in the 1990s had sold uh, almost a million copies. Limonov became a celebrity because of this, and of course. So, so there was a strong contradiction in the sense of this. On the one hand, uh, this masculinist attitude to politics and life, this kind of very warlike and military-like uh, um, uh, approach to um, to gender roles, and on the other hand, there were uh, aspects of the movement that kind of uh, allowed for a certain kind of. Uh, uh, the transgression of gender roles, in part mm-hmm. because right. of, uh, of Limonov interest in in uh, in uh, uh, in sort of Limonov interest and also Limonov uh, uh, self presentation. Another one, another person who was very close to Limonov when he came back to uh, to Russia and who was uh, uh, before kind of emigrating to the United States, one of the. Uh, main uh, um, kind of uh, figure behind the National Bolshevik Party at the very beginning was Yaroslav Magutin, who was a, a sort of, he's a very famous kind of gay activist and art performer in New York now. He was at the time. So there was kind of a certain, a certain room for ambiguity in that sense. And the mm-hmm. last thing that I should, I should add, and there are, so this thing, it's very complex, nuance and very complicated. So I, I hope I do. Uh, I do try to to kind of clarify or disentangle some of these contradictions in uh, in in some of the some parts of my book. But another aspect in terms of the everyday life of the movement is that even if the uh, NBP at various points had this kind of strong, uh, explicit declaration of. Uh, masculinity and uh, at times even traditional gender roles. Some of my, and it was mostly uh, male, some of my, um, in terms of uh, constituency and uh, participants in the movement, some of my um, informants, in particular the female informants, were noticing, uh, noticed how uh, the NBP was famous among 
the nationalist movements who are all very male dominated for being quite a little bit of an exception in the sense that they had many more women than other nationalist movements right so they because mm-hmm. of, probably because of this kind of artistic creative side of it it was more sort of accepting or it kind of drew uh, more women than other movements but although i should kind of yeah uh, I, I, I sort I sort of want to pick up on that, Fabrizio, because in I mean in your later chapters, especially when you then get into the commentaries about performativity, and especially protest, the nature of protest. Uh, I mean that this is such a huge question going through the mid two thousand teens up to the very present with Navalny. <coughs> I mean, so many have have used the label fascist to to describe. Dugan, I wonder if you think that's correct. Others have have made accusations against Limonov, the late Limonov now for his childishness or or just gestural forms of performative protest, which don't quite translate into civic activism, you know, the, the sort of politics of despair thesis. So, you know, I'm particularly interested in how you connect this performative politics to aesthetics and and if let's say in the age of, of of Pussy Riot and Navalny and beyond, it it is actually more than just a graphomania, right? I mean, writing the fifty five books that that Dugan has in his official kind of way. My my question is is to to get you sort of to connect the aesthetics to the politics, and and especially in this performative scene um, um, in Moscow and beyond. How how do you understand that problem? Yes. So, uh, in in, uh, in parts of my book, I actually and uh, uh, sort of some of in some of the chapters, I kind of trace uh, a certain connection between the performativity of the NBPSA and uh, uh, the performativity of such art, political art groups as the uh, group Vaina or War, which was kind of the predecessors right. of Pussy Riot. In the sense, both of their methods of protest and the type of kind of uh, uh, structure of the movement, in the sense that Vaina also had a little bit kind of this, well, radical anarchist, but also almost uh, military-like uh, uh, structure and organization, and uh, and both in terms of the kind of inspiration, in the sense that many many members of the group that they they talked about Limonov, they talked about the Natsboli, and they talked about their desire of kind of truly bringing uh, the art into the streets and truly be kind of a, like a radical political activist and not just an art performer. And in terms of gender, uh, one aspect that is interesting is that uh, 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 Nadia Talakonikova and other members of uh, uh, by now, who then became uh, uh, sort of started their own uh, group with Pussy Riot. In fact, they kind of started something new in part because of uh, the fact that by now was, uh, in that sense, in a way similar to the MBP, a very ma- male dominated kind of uh, masculinist, in part sexist uh, movement. Uh, at least that's what they claimed. And so Pussy Riot, as a feminist, uh, uh, art uh, performance group kind of 
sort of continued the legacy of Vaina, but with this more feminist and kind of gender or oriented uh, direction. In, so the, the other question is that of performativity that maybe I leave on the side for a second because there's the question of Stiob and living yeah, beyond yeah, yeah. And maybe we should keep we'll, that. We can come back to that. And in terms of fascism, uh, so I do. So there's no doubt that Limonov and Dugin, even more, they flirted with the fascist aesthetics, fascist ideas, or totalitarian ideas of various kinds. So I have no kind of uh, uh, doubts about that, or no resistance to 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 the use of that sort of or to the sort of acknowledging that aspect of this uh, uh, of the of this kind of performativity what i have some resistance to is the use of the label fascism within um sort of uh, political or critical uh, theory or the political science so in a sort of academic environment in the sense that that as many have uh, uh, kind of proven and discussed publicly among them, say, Madeleine Laruelle, who's also a, a, a specialist on Russian nationalism. The, the term fascism in an academic environment is very loaded and so should be used in a kind of more specific way because otherwise it risks to be quite ambiguous. So to give you an example, very concrete example of this, you might be uh, familiar with the uh, pro-government movement Nashi, right? That was right. this pro-Putin movement that was organized by the Putin's administration that was accused of horrible violence and persecution. And it was founded uh, as an anti-fascist movement in the uh, kind of tradition of the patriotic uh, war um, um, and the struggle against fascism of the Soviet Union was uh, also accused of being fascist itself. Nashi were called Nashisti, right? And mm-hmm. so it was this anti-fascist fascist movement in the in the country. I think in, in generally in various political contexts, when one studies these fringe movements, it can be a very ambiguous moment in a, a kind of term the term fascism itself. I mean. And in the case of Russia, even more so in the sense that accusers of fascism are kind of thrown back and forth as mostly a way to discredit any uh, political opponent. And so they they end up being quite not effective in terms of sort of uh, scholarship. That's, Mm -hmm. That's my main yeah, and and could you talk a bit about the aesthetics? Because I mean, I I find it fascinating how you bring your own sort of Italian background, if I might say so, into an understanding of the avant-garde and and futurism here. You know, I think of older works like Renata Pajoli, but but certainly mm-hmm. you you bring in a whole lot of um, Yuri Lotman and and Ushakin and talking about the semiotics of this. I, I wonder if, if I might ask this as a question of you, Fabrizio, it, there seems to be a world of cultural critique and, and cultural theory that political scientists and those who are readily attaching the word or the label fascism are, are not are not quite understanding or perhaps not, not quite conceptualizing. 
And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you could get into that because it seems like a greater problem, this condition of, of performativity and post-modernity. And, and maybe, you know, in, you describe this uh, in talking about the conservative Bohemia in this wonderful chapter, um, if you could mm-hmm. get into the aesthetics. So, I mean, how do you see this as a particular moment in the 2000 teens and, and, and a critique of neoliberalism or, or in, in a particular, let's say, cultural field of neoliberalism in which these writers and these um, intellectuals and artists and university students who are elitist but playing Gopniki. I mean, what? Mm-hmm. How, how do you see that particular aesthetic challenge? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And yes, sometimes th- this is kind of the the... In, in a way, this is the proof that kind of looking at culture and having a grounded approach to uh, contemporary politics and societies in Russia and uh, other countries is can be a very effective uh, uh, way to look at uh, uh, kind of broad political processes in the sense that it allows one to 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 see and and understand some of the cultural and almost linguistic nuances right because some uh, some kind of the linguistic and cultural differences can actually uh, bring a sort of a certain kind of misunderstandings right in terms of looking at politics in a uh, beyond culture and uh, beyond language and in terms of the aesthetics yes one so one to really over kind of simplify one of the points. If one looks, say, at Limonka in the sense of this kind of uh, uh, early period of the 1990s, uh, there is an aesthetic that is the aesthetic of the avant-garde in the sense of sort of uh, kind of the Rochenka uh, photo collage, uh, and but also, of course, in the most provocative manner, this symbol that the NBP had, which was this hammer and sickle, uh, black hammer and sickle within a kind of white circle and uh, in a red on a red background that was a hammer and sickle that reminded one of a swastika, right? So there was this uh, immediate allusion that was quite shocking uh, for anyone, sort of uh, for the general public in Russia. And so, if one looks, at sort of, sort of, in, sort of, it's a sort of oversimplified interpretation of this is that. In a world where, in the 1990s, where sort of liberalism and Western democracy were uh, kind of used as a, a sort of accepted uh, truth, uh, but especially that, of course, liberal, as, as liberalism and Western democracy in a very sort of uh, uh, superficial manner in the sense that the label was used to kind of justify the worst kinds of corruption or uh, sort of social inequality and uh, and sort of a, a kind of the, the, the and sort of lack and lawlessness of the 90s in the sense of sort of widespread criminality um, so for for them that sort of the use of this very shocking uh, radical, uh, art forms and sort of aesthetic forms was a way to kind of do the opposite of what the mainstream uh, uh, media or mainstream public culture was imposing. That is the idea that uh, that's kind of the Soviet Union, those 70 years of the Soviet of Soviet history were kind of a strange mistake or a stain uh, 
in mm -hmm. a kind of a Russian identity. And instead of accepting this idea of an end of history, end of ideology, and the fact that sort of the market, right, or consumerism should be a kind of uh, uh, complete and total explanation for everything uh, at beyond and outside of ideology, these people, the Natsboli, took symbols that were hyper-ideological, right, an excess of ideology as a response and rejection to this kind of uh, uh, denial and uh, negation of, of ideology itself that was mm -hmm. typical of the first post-Soviet period, if I can... Yeah. And my, my last question for you before we get into our snowball and, and you suggesting some other uh, people to read, including literature scholars, you know, I'm really intrigued by, by Elliot Borenstein's point in Men Without Women. And, and he makes this point about the coexistence of bohemianism and experimentation, and especially in gender and sexuality, with a sort of idealization of macho and, and masculinity and comradeship. And, and I wonder, you know, if I could ask you this as, as how you see Russian protests now, do these communities of, of, let's say, aesthetic or aestheticized political protesters seem to be inclusive? Do they seem to, well, do they seem to be welcoming of non-Russians non or uh, how do you understand this particular problem now in 2021? on the Russian literary and artistic scene? Is, is it just a sort of performance, let's say, at the moment when a person is insisting on a quest for authenticity during a university experience? Or, or does it extend to something beyond that in the world of protest and nationalism? Well, so I would say that it, uh, that it depends. So there is, in terms of the gender and uh, masculinity aspect of this, I think that uh, the example of uh, uh, Borenstein that you bring up in terms of the early Soviet period uh, is very fitting in the sense that this was also interesting, so that this was kind of not completely, that, that of the NBP was not completely an anomaly in the sense that the early Soviet moment was a moment of great sort of, uh, in part, sexual liberation, sexual experimentation, uh, very progressive uh, uh, in certain aspects, family policies, and as many such as Borenstein and Eric Nyman uh, proved also very macho and very anti-feminist and anti-femininity, right? In the sense of creating this right. brotherhood of, of uh, uh, men. And so that, that's kind of a, a good example that applies to the contemporary moment in the sense that uh, as, as uh, other sort of scholars have uh, proven there is a kind of uh, also a competition and the use of sort of uh, hyper-masculinity, both mm -hmm. among sort of the anti-government protesters the, and even the liberal uh, right. protesters right, right. And, the, and the government. Uh, in terms of the type of inclusivity and sort of uh, nationalist elements in the movement, it is something that that so and in that sense that reflects is kind of like a bigger version of the NVP in the sense that the movement the the, the protest movement is uh, uh, ideologically very diverse, right? So it's anything that is against Putin, and it includes the left, the right, feminist. <laughs> nationalist, ethno-nationalist, imperialist forces, as it did <laughs> right. in 2011, 2012, 
and in this sense so that that and in this sense i think that that's why i think that uh, the nbp had also a very kind of strong influence on uh, the contemporary moment in the sense that the nbp was a platform right that accepted everything with this idea of combining radical left and radical right and re- very much would anything that is radical or revolutionary ideology or even just ideology, the result of this is that it was very much kind of a cultural, political uh, laboratory or platform where people that were very different and had very different convictions coexisted. So skinheads and anarchists, uh, uh, communists and fascists, and so on and so forth, right? And conservatives and hyper progressives and so on and so forth and in a sense in a more mass uh, scale i think that the movements today the uh, sort of the uh, protest movements the waves of protest movements that um, that appear periodically in russia against the government today also they reflect a similar diversity so it's very difficult to have a sort of definitive uh, the definition of these movements ideologically or in terms of sort of social policies in the yeah. sense that they all accept pretty much everything and this coexists. And so and the, the positive aspect of this is that it is a kind of, right, a social experiment and a political experiment in the sense that both the NBP on a smaller scale, more avant-garde sort of um, pioneering scale, the, the way they were kind of uh, uh, testing uh, new forms of public culture, new forms of political culture in an interesting manner as the as many of these kind of mass movements are today. The negative aspect that was kind of the classic uh, criticism that was raised against the MBP and other kind of performative or aesthetic forms of protest is that they do not have a sort of ideological or political direction and because of that they're not really effective in terms of uh, institutional politics and and sort of change uh, in terms of uh, mm. uh, right state and government institutions right yeah so it, 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 it sounds it sounds like a lot fabrizio like the accusations that were leveled at, at the occupy movement right that it was an organization without a head or that an, and it was an ideological movement without an ideology um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in that. I'm also re- interested to see who is still reading Limonov now after his death and, du- and Dugan. I mean, Dugan is Grafomanstvo incarnate. I don't know how many novels he has now or I mean, 55, 56, I mean, and counting. So it's an interesting question for me, studying Ukrainian literature and culture, thinking about when these aesthetics function and when they sort of lose their lose their momentum. Um, so uh, my final, you know, sort of setup for you, since we want to talk snowballs, is <laughs> if if you could recommend two or three other people, perhaps uh, in in your field, for our listeners here at New Books Network and New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies, and then give us an idea if you can about your current uh, research interests and projects. Yes, that's uh, that's uh, uh, I would be happy to do that. So. I'm thinking in terms of uh, people working in my field and in the field of uh, of, uh, political activism and culture um, today and post-Soviet political activism and culture more generally, 
One is a, a cultural anthropologist. Her name is Julie Hammond. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she has a book on called Youth Politics. And it's uh, 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 Youth Politics in Putin's Russia, um, uh, producing uh, um, patriots and entrepreneurs. Uh, it's from 2015, and it analyzes the actually with some ethnographic uh, uh, fieldwork, it analyzes the uh, movement Nashi, the sort of the pro government movement Nashi. So that's a very interesting. Uh, Mm. way to look at very less known uh, um no i don't know uh, i don't know that thank you yeah great so that's one the other one uh, i would say uh well marlene laruelle who's sure. at george washington university she's very prolific and has a book that came out i believe with i have a <clears throat> i believe just two years ago uh, the title is Russian Nationalism, Imaginaries, Doctrines, and Political Battlefields. And she's, <clears throat> she's a political scientist and uh, very up-to-date on sort of so many uh, uh, sort of movements and uh, ideologies that emerged in the nationalist and conservative camps uh, in the past few years. So that's, that's an interesting book as well. And another, the third, is a friend and colleague uh, who um, has been working on uh, uh, leftist poetry and uh, sort of uh, leftist literature more generally. And her name is Marietta Bozovic. And she has, uh, this book is not out yet, but she has been working on it for uh, several years. So it should be, uh, should be coming out soon. And uh, and again, it's it's she works mostly on the sort of uh, uh, yeah, well youth counterculture and in, especially in this aspect of kind of leftist counterculture and poetry in the last fifty to twenty years. Excellent. And just the one minute or one and a half. What are you, what are you working on now? Well, so the main project that I would like to sort of uh, mention is actually a collective project. So it could be in between uh, snowball sampling in the sense that there are <laughs> other people involved that that are also working on uh, on contemporary and post-Soviet culture and politics. And it's a digital humanities uh, a project that was awarded a five-year Yes. Uh, NEH uh, grant. And, and, Andrew Jenko and company, right? And, no, and Natalia no. Yeremeyeva, yes? No, no, this is, uh, this is another one. I think. Oh, another one. Okay, <laughs> tell me. Sorry, go yes. ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, it's, it's fine. It's uh, called Post-Soviet Media in the 90s. And uh, oh, wow. uh, the PI principal investigator is Maya Vinokur from uh, uh, NYU, and the idea is to create a, a digital archive. And there are so it's about six or seven of us involved, and it's uh, going to be a digital archive of uh, uh, the 1990s. So the transfer uh, focusing on media and various kinds of media, so television, newspapers, uh, radio, print, and so on and so forth. Digi all sort of online digital archive. It's kind of a long-term project. There will be an edited collection. There are various people involved. Uh, uh, 
uh, I won't name them all, but you can uh, check them out. This is kind of my uh, very, I think it's going to be a very interesting project and kind of a way of discovering new materials and kind of aspects of uh, contemporary Russian uh, uh, history that are uh, less known. What's that? I'm sorry. What was the project that you mentioned? That uh, um, you, this you is, this is the project, just to, meant to plug it here, uh, a new book. It's the project with Andrew Janko and um, the DH people. So uh, Katya Bowers, who's in Grunwald, I, I believe um, Jesse Labo, uh, Marietta Boy. Um, is involved in it at Yale, Natalia Yeramieva at Princeton. So I'm just like really fascinated now because there's more than one Russian digital humanities project with funding. So that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I think that there, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, that, that the, their project is more focused on the Soviet period. Yes, Soviet that's right. Period. That's right. Right. Look, look, look. Yeah, that's it, it, it. We're almost out of time, so I just wanted to, yes, to yes. make sure we have that and and you, um, and and that I thank you for joining us here uh, to talk about your book. Are you are you working just very quickly, thirty second on on something else? Uh, may I ask? Uh, yes, I'm working on this right now and uh, an article uh, for a cluster on geopolitical imagination in. Uh, uh, Russian fiction and beyond, uh, and I'm particularly I'm writing a, the, my own article is about Pavel Krusanov, who's a Petersburg uh, um, postmodern imperialist writer and the leader of the Petersburg fun- fundamentalists or neo-fundamentalists that also produced some scandals with their uh, manifestos in the early to mid 2000s. So that's the the main the sort of short term, and in the long term, the other sort of long project is about new realism and Zahar Prilepin, who was also coming out of the NBP and other sort of uh, uh, writers. That, uh, but that's more of a long term project for my second book. Yeah, uh, Fanta- uh, fan- fan- fantastic, um, Fabrizio Fengi. I, I really want to thank you for joining us here uh, and talking about your book here on New Books Network. The new book is called It Will Be Fun and Terrifying, Nationalism and Protest in Post-Soviet Russia, All the More Urgent Right Now at This Very Moment, published by University of Wisconsin Press in 2020. Congratulations on the book. It was a pleasure to have you here on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here. Come again. Thanks a lot for joining us.